Well, good morning, everyone. Um, I'm going to start out this morning with a little trivia. It's going to be easy, so young and old alike can participate. So this is a statement, and I want you to tell me the source of this statement. It says, all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Where does that come from? Preamble to the Constitution, very good. So it's our founding document that says that it's the right of every American to live a free and happy life. It may, you probably know this, but that process of establishing our Constitution was a labor of love. It took them four months uh, of, of, of debates and discussions in a small, unair conditioned room in Philadelphia. Which is why you might understand when James Madison, after having just established the Constitution, then proposed a, a Bill of Rights, amendments to that com- Constitution. And you can understand why, after having worked so hard and so long, they initially refused to consider his proposal. <laughs> it was as if they said, boy, this was hard enough. We don't want to do it all again, right? But his point about the Bill of Rights was important. Because he looked at the Constitution and he said, hey, this was really important to establish a centralized government for a more perfect union. But the Bill of Rights is ultimately what protects the the individual liberties of the Americans. Things like freedom of speech, freedom of religion, the right to bear arms, the the right to a fair trial. These are things that we would all agree are, are necessary for that happy and free life. But there's something interesting about those Bill of Rights at that time. And that is that they only applied to a very specific group of people. You know who they were? Male, white landowners. Everybody else was excluded. Women, minorities. And so built into the Bill of Rights was a selfish bias, right? And so apparently... All men were not created equal because not all were afforded the same freedoms. And I think if we look at what's happening within the context of the Corinthian church, we see something very similar going on. And it's something that we need to pay attention to because I don't know that we're all that immune from this problem. You see, they're actually seeking their rights too. Their unalienable rights to Christian freedom. And within that, they have a selfish bias built in as well. It's that opinion that that I should have the right to determine what's best for me. Because their thought is, let's be honest, we're we're all at different places of spiritual maturity and and spiritual growth. And so as long as my conscience is clear, then I shouldn't have to worry about what other people think, right? Well, Paul has a different opinion. And he wants to change their perspective because he wants them to understand that the goal of the Christian life is not to claim your rights but to actually lay them down for the good of another it's this idea that what's right for me is ultimately determined by what's best for you what's right for me is ultimately determined by what's best you even if I have to sacrifice my own personal freedoms to accomplish that goal 
because ultimately that's the example of Christ who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, to give his life for the good of others. And so if we profess to have faith in our Savior, Christ, then we are committing ourselves to live a life like his, who considered the needs of others as more important than his own, who sacrificed his rights for the good of others, so that we can adopt that same others first philosophy, where what's right for me is ultimately determined by what's best for you. And that's the heart of our passage this morning. So before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Father, in many ways, uh, the things that we will talk about this morning are counterintuitive to the way that we're normally wired and perhaps to the way that our culture uh, today inclines us. And so as we look at this, Father, would you do a, a realignment, if that's necessary, within our heart so that our values, our desires are ultimately aligned with your will, with your heart, with your desire for our life. We want to glorify and honor you in all that we do. And so may you take the truth of your word this morning and transform our life to accomplish that goal. And that's our humble prayer. In the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Turn, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, we will pick up where we left off last. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We will begin in verse 23. So if you will, follow along with me as Paul continues his letter. He says, All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For all the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. I believe as Paul begins this discussion, actually continues the discussion of meat sacrifice to idols, he makes this statement, all things are lawful. And I think probably what he's doing is representing an opinion of the Corinthian church. It's that idea that I should have the right to determine what's best for me. If my conscience is clear, then it must be lawful. And on one hand, Paul's going to agree. He's going to say, yeah, that may be true. It may be lawful for you. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's profitable for others. And just because it's in your best interest doesn't mean that it's good for other people as well. So he gives them a new paradigm to help them determine what's right and good from a biblical perspective. So that instead of making decisions based on what's best for me, I'm seeking the needs of others as more important than my own. Because biblically, ultimately what's right for me is determined by what's best for others. Like I said, we, we see that in the example of Christ, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But what did he do? He humbled himself, becoming a bondservant, ultimately giving his life. Why? For the good of others. And so if this is uh, our commitment of faith to put our trust in him, then our desire is to live in accordance with his example. To, 
to not seek our own good, but to seek the good of others. Which is why Paul goes on to say in verse 25, uh, so on the one hand, you're right. Look at that again, verse 25. Eat anything that's sold in the market without asking questions for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. His point here is that no meat has the power to defile you. You can go to the market and purchase and therefore eat anything that's in the market because it's sold together. There's no distinguishing meat sacrificed to idols from other meat. You can't tell the difference. And so since that meat has no power to defile you, you can take it home, you can serve it, and you can eat it in good conscience. It's like Jesus said, it's not what enters the mouth that defiles the man, it's what fills the heart. And so if your heart is filled with faith in Christ, then that's how you're made clean. That's how you're made holy, through faith and trust in him. And so, yes, you're right. No meat has the power to defile you. So you can go to the market, purchase that meat, and serve it in your home in good conscience. Because your holiness is not based on dietary restrictions. Your holiness is ultimately determined by your faith in Christ. But when it comes to your witness, now things begin to change. And this is where Paul is going to speak to how we might need to forfeit our own personal freedoms for the good of someone else. Look at what he says in verse 27. He says, if anyone, if one of the unbelievers invites you and you wish to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone should say to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you. And for conscience sake, I mean not your conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning, the, concerning that for which I give thanks? Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So Paul moves from one scenario about this issue of meat being sacrificed and its inerrant power to defile you. And he says, that's not true. That, that's not the case. You were cleansed by the blood of Christ. But then he goes on to say, here's a different scenario. Let's say that an unbeliever within your community invites you to their home. You, you look at verse 27 again. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you wish to go, Eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. We get the idea here that, that this is an, an offer for fellowship. Somebody inviting you into their home to share a meal with them. And much like the, the discussion about meat sacrificed to idols that is in the market, he says, look, if they don't distinguish it as meat sacrificed to idols, he says, don't ask. Eat. Because that meat doesn't have any power to defile you. Enjoy that social engagement with that unbeliever. It's what's right for you. And ultimately, it's what's best for them. Because you see, God has not called Christians to be meat inspectors. Unlike the Jews, Christians are, are not restricted by certain dietary laws in order to preserve a state of holiness. And that gives us great freedom when it comes to engaging in relationships with believers and unbelievers alike. Because we know that we've been made holy by the blood of Christ. 
But Paul wants to make sure they understand that those relationships have a mission to them. That privilege has a purpose. See, Paul didn't want the Corinthians to be, to be cut off from the, the fabric of society. He knew that they, like us, have been called to go and make disciples. And so that process of sharing Christ with others requires us to engage with them relationally. But that relationship has a mission. And it's not to be pursued to advance a social, certain social status, which was what the Corinthians had justified. They wanted to be involved in the fellowship because it was good for them. And Paul says, no, be involved in the fellowship when it's good for others. So it's good for Christians to share in fellowship with unbelievers as long as you're committed to sharing the gospel. Which means that that love operates within certain boundaries. And Paul explains that because he changes it again. Look in verse 28. He says, but if anyone should say to you, again, you're at a believer's house, unbeliever's house, and they say, this meat is sacrificed to idols. Paul goes on and says, do not eat it for the sake of the one who has informed you and for conscience sake. In other words, if they identify the meat as having been sacrificed to an idol and by implication are inviting you to enjoy that meal in honor of that idol, he says politely refuse to participate. Again, the focus here is on the good of the other person. They're not avoiding the meat because it has some power to defile them as a Christian. They're not avoiding the meat because there's some personal impact. They're avoiding the meat because of the purity of the witness that they have before the unbeliever. Look at what he says in verse 29. He makes that clear. I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's. It's not in regard to what's right for you. This is what's best for them. By supporting that idol worship, you are encouraging and even validating their deception. Without drawing a line, you're saying it's no big deal. Last week, um, after church, Mr. Courtney came up and visited with me and spoke about an experience he had while he was in Japan ministering there. He gave a, a story of a, a man that he had come to know who was from Japan, who he'd ministered to and become friends with. Well, during that friendship, this man's mother passed away. And so he asked Dick Courtney to, to join him at that funeral service. And because of that friendship and that relationship that he had built with this man to share Christ with him, he agreed to go and to support him in that time. When he arrived, he realized that part of that tradition within this culture was to offer some sacrifice personally to the God that would then protect the person who had died. And so when that opportunity came to Mr. Courtney, he respectfully refused to participate. Interestingly, his friend who invited him to come saw his example and chose to do the same. I think that's a similar idea of what's happening in our passage here in Corinthians. The decision you make is ultimately determined by the good of the other person. It's okay to build a relationship with unbelievers, but validating their deception would be the most unloving thing that you could possibly do. Your witness for Christ 
must be protected within certain boundaries. So Paul goes on to ask some rhetorical questions, and I, and I think these questions are some anticipated objections from the Corinthian church. Look at the second part of verse 29. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? I think what he's doing here is trying to address what he expects them to be thinking. Because remember, the Corinthians have already made up their mind. When they wrote this letter to Paul, they told him what their opinion was. And they had justified in their mind that it was okay to participate in these fellowships of idol meat sacrifice to idols. But we know that that decision was based on what was right for them, not on what was good for others. So Paul goes on to say in verse 31, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You see, in those rhetorical questions, I think Paul is presenting a a question that we need to ask ourselves as well, and it is this. As a Christian, should our freedom be limited by another person's conscience, their knowledge of what is good and right and true? The answer is, Yes, absolutely yes. You see, the Corinthians have justified, (laughs) hey, if it's an issue for them, that's not my problem. Paul says, oh, yes, it is. That is your problem. Your decision doesn't need to be based on your knowledge. It's on their understanding. Your goal is to honor God, to bring him glory, which means the message of the gospel should always direct your life. And that gospel is based on the truth that you sacrifice your own personal freedoms for the good of someone else. That's how you direct your decision. Look at how he continues in verse 32. He says, give no offense, either to the Jews or to the Greeks or even to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. His key point here is that the gospel should be the goal of our life. It should direct our decisions. And and Paul has gone to great lengths in his letter already to explain what that has looked like in his own life. Remember, he says, even though I am free, I've become a slave to all so that I might win some. You recall, he says, and so to a Jew, I become as a Jew. And so that means he respects those requirements of the law within that context in that culture. But then he said, as a Gentile who does not, does not uh, follow those same requirements of the law, I don't do that in that context and in that culture. To the weak, I become weak. Why? so that I might win the week. And then in verse chapter 9, verse 23, here's the key. He says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. The ultimate goal of the Christian life is not life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The ultimate goal of the Christian life is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a commitment to live for the good of others so that what's right for me 
is ultimately determined by what's best for others. And when we think about the gospel, Jason made this point yesterday when he was speaking to the folks that are going to be a part of that mission trip this uh, summer. He said, let's make sure that when we talk about the gospel, we're not isolating it to some past event as if it doesn't have relevance to our present life. When I became a Christian back then and, and how I was bad and now uh, I made a decision to follow Christ and everything's good. Because the reality is, is the gospel not only saved me, but it continues to perfect me. The forgiveness that I experience through faith in Christ is the forgiveness that I continue to need on a daily basis. That redemptive work didn't stop. It continues. And so salvation in the gospel is an aspect of my everyday life. And I think that's Paul's point as well. And so when he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, he's not being prideful. And he's not looking at the Corinthian church and saying, look, guys, I've got this thing down, so just do whatever I do. That's not what that statement is saying. His statement is actually a call to community, a call to live out the gospel in our everyday lives. You may remember Paul told Timothy, he said, Christ came to the world to save sinners. And then he goes on to qualify, of which I am the chief of those sinners. So you think, I, I think Paul clearly knew and understood that he would fall short, just like we all fall short. And, and so his statement is very intentional. Follow me as I follow Christ. Look at my example as my example lines up with Christ. See, ultimately, Jesus is our pattern. He's the one that lived the example of a life that is lived for the good of others, who sacrificed his own freedoms for the benefit of others. So what's right for me is ultimately determined what's best for, for you. You see, I think the heart of the gospel is the ultimate goal of the Christian life. Living in the reality of God's grace and forgiveness Every day, empowered by the, the Holy Spirit to walk in faithful obedience, looking towards the hope of Christ's return and knowing that this world is not our home. And so we don't want to get comfortable here as if this is all there is. We have something that we're striving towards. So the obvious question as we walk through this together is this. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ... Does this describe you? Is the gospel of Jesus Christ your goal in life? Does it direct your decisions? Do you come to a place in your life where you, the, what's right for you is ultimately determined by what's best for others? I think the tendency for us at this point is, is to tell ourselves, well, I probably have some room to grow there, right? And, and we think that probably the best place to start is to get the focus off of me, <laughs> My needs, my rights. And I think there's some truth to that. But I want to caution this because very often what follows is, well, if that's the case, then, then I need to involve myself in, in more service. I, I need to, to share the gospel more often. And I think those are good things, and we could all do a better job of living that out faithfully. But I don't believe that that's where we should start. And let me tell you why. 
if that's where we begin, we run the risk of making service and sharing the gospel just another thing on our list of things that we feel like we're supposed to do. And instead of carrying it out for the good of others, if we're real honest with ourselves, we're, ab- we're actually doing it so that we feel better about ourselves. We're doing it for us. There's a, a selfish motive built in to it. And, and one of the ways that we can tell that is if when we give ourselves in service or we share something to, with somebody, and if, if they don't receive it like we think they should or, or if they don't seem uh, to respond like we want them to, then we get frustrated. We get angry, we might even get bitter, and we might even say to ourselves, well, forget that. I'm not going to do that again. It's the point where our good deeds become dependent upon a favorable response from the other person. And when I start with service, I think that's the risk we run. Because oftentimes it's really about me and not the good of the other person. Which is why I think what Paul has to say gives us a different alternative that I think is a healthier approach. Notice again, he says, be imitators of me as I also am of Christ. Notice the connection between the life of Paul and the life of Christ. Paul is serving out of the overflow of his fellowship with Christ. Because here's the key. In the absence of an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ, you or I don't have anything of value to offer. Apart from him, we can do nothing. And even if we think we have something to offer, the truth is it's in limited supply when it's up to us alone. This summer, Terry and I and Dawn and the Kennedys and a few others uh, have the privilege of being able to go to Israel. And to say that I'm excited would be an understatement. <laughs> and one of the things that uh, I look forward to in Israel is going to the Dead Sea. Uh, what a fascinating place. And, and many of you know all about the Dead Sea. You know that there's no life in that water. It can't support plant life. It can't support animal life. It's full of salt. And one of the reasons is, is because there's no outlet. Water comes in, but there's no place for it to go out. You see, for a body of water to be healthy, it has to have good inlets and good outlets. So there's a circulation of fresh water. Well, I think that same truth applies to our spiritual life as well. If nothing comes in, we eventually run dry. If nothing goes out, we become stagnant and and we can't support life. We've got to be able to serve out of the overflow of our fellowship with God. And so I want to end this morning by giving you four signs of a healthy heart when it comes to serving and sharing the gospel with others, okay? Four things, and you might want to write these down. I'm going to do it by reference of comparison. So I'm going to talk about what it looks like to have a a selfish heart of service compared to a a Christ-centered heart of service. The first one is this. A selfish heart of service needs a big show. It needs something to to show for their work. Turn to Matthew chapter 6. I think Jesus speaks to this issue. Matthew chapter 6. Let's look at this together. Matthew chapter 6. Jesus' teaching says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. 
Therefore, when you give alms, do so. Do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say that you, to you that they have their reward in full. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that, you may, that your alms may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will repay you. So one of the qualities of a Christ-centered service, a Christ-focused service, is it's okay with being hidden. It's okay with working behind the scenes. It's okay with not being honored by men, but being satisfied with being approved by God, accepted by Him, and faithful to serve as He leads and directs in your life. The second thing is this. A self-focused service is highly concerned with results something to show for the work and I want to be careful with this but here's one of the ways I think this shows up in modern evangelism we judge our success of sharing the gospel by how many decisions are made and we feel good about ourselves when it's a long number or a a, a big number a long list of names and yet when we think about that oftentimes that number is not for their good it's for us to feel better about what we've accomplished. But did any one of those people come to faith in Jesus Christ because of anything you accomplished in their heart? No possible way. And so I think the difference between looking for numbers to validate is to delight in the service itself. To share the gospel just by sharing your life. So that when you spend time with people, yes, share with them about the truth of Jesus Christ, but let them know how that gospel is alive and well in your life today. That you are just as much in need of the redemptive work of Christ right now than, the wor- than you were the day you put your faith and trust in Him. That that need hasn't changed. Every hour I need Thee, Lord. Every hour. And, and so share the gospel. Not as some past event, but as a present reality in your life as a follower of Christ. The third thing is this. Uh, Self-service depends on the right feeling in order to serve. You might have heard people say, and you might have even said yourself, I'm probably guilty of this. (laughs) You know, I'd really like to serve in that area, but I'm just not passionate to do that. Is that a requirement to serve well? to be passionate about it? Why don't we have a heart like Christ's who said, I'll serve where there's a need to serve? That was the requirement. Not the passion to do so, but the need and the desire to fill that need, not for your good so that you feel better about what you've contributed, but for their good because you've loved and cared for them in the place where they need it most. So I think a a Christ-centered focus doesn't need a passion. They just see a need. And that's where they invest their life. The last one is this. A self-focused service is dependent upon fixing the problem. I'll call it hit-and-run love. (laughs) Okay, it's investing in something where you feel like there's a solution, a need you can meet, boom, you do it, and boom, you're gone. And men, we're guilty of this probably more than most because we're fixers, right? There's a need, I want to listen, okay, how do I solve it? Got it. I know what I can do. Fix it. Move on. I think that's a self-centered focus. And a Christ-centered focus is what I'll call 
here to stay kind of love. It's that idea that, look, I know when you lose somebody you love, there's going to be a lot of people who are here to express their condolences and to care for you. But I want you to know, six months from now, I'm still going to be there. A year and a half, six years from now, I'm still going to be there. It's somebody who is committed <laughs> to a lifetime of relationship, not for their benefit, but for the good of the other person. And the key to all these things is to make sure that we understand that a heart of Christ-centered service is dependent upon an abiding relationship with our Savior. We've got to serve out of the overflow. The inlet has to exist before the outlet is healthy. And so the key is not start with serving, but start with following and worshiping and abiding in Christ. And then out of that overflow, then give to the needs of others. Without need for reward or recognition, without a big show, but out of love and faithful commitment. So that what I determine is right for me is ultimately based on what's best for you. And that is how your decisions are directed. Because that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this message and its timing as we uh, go and support the student ministry who will be sharing their lives with people from Mexico. People like Americans who are in desperate need of a Savior, who, like Americans, are often in the pursuit of a free and happy life when really what they need is hope in Jesus Christ. So as we go and support them, may we be faithful to live out those truths as well. So that our desire to do what is right is ultimately determined by what is best for others. Even if it means sacrificing our own freedoms in order to accomplish that goal. May the gospel of Jesus Christ and that example of his sacrificial love become the very heartbeat of our life as followers of our Savior. May we love not just unbelievers but even one another with that same sacrificial love to the praise and glory of your name to honor you to glorify you in everything we do we pray this in the name of jesus christ amen i'll have some good day and go eat some spaghetti <laughs>